Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Open Concessions podcast presented by Toyota, featuring a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your weekly hosts, Len Casper, Jim Deshays. We make up the Cubs television tandem. How are you this week, J.D.? How's the knee going? Uh, Getting better, Len. Thank you. Um, Still a little bit gimpy, but uh, doing much better. That is good to know. I know you had long pants on earlier this week, so that's always a big step in the process yeah. when you can graduate from shorts. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always nice to, to be able to put pants on and to, and to be able to walk around the block uh, in pants and uh, not have to ice your knee down after a five-minute stroll. Exactly. You might be able to hear the dogs barking in the, the background. Our dogs bark every day, though, figuratively, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yes. Uh, So our guest this week is Craig Breslow. He is the Cubs Director of Pitching, Special Assistant to the President and General Manager. And he's tasked, uh, reading the Cubs Media Guide, with strategic management of the club's minor league pitching infrastructure. He was once called the smartest man in baseball. He went to Yale, and I am really looking forward to digging into the brain of Craig Breslow. Yeah, there's been so many advances in the game in, in, ter- in terms of the analytics and the data. So to be able to talk to, uh, as you mentioned, quote unquote, the, the guy who was once considered the smartest man in baseball, to kind of see uh, w- where it's all headed. I, I'm very curious. I do have a fear that I, I may be Gilligan to his professor, uh, but, <laughs> but hopefully we can get him to speak on our level, or at least my level. Well, we should also note uh, 12 seasons in the major leagues, left-handed pitcher made 576 appearances so not just a smart guy he was a he was a good pitcher for a long time right and so you know when he when he goes into the clubhouse and when he talks to players um you know there's immediate credibility you know i i I doubt that there's much pushback in the modern game now because analytics have have advanced so far uh but there may be still guys that are you know hesitant to listen to you know quote-unquote uh smart ivy league front office guys but when that guy has 12 years of big league experience on his resume uh, people are going to pay attention enjoy our conversation with craig breslow craig thanks for joining us today um when you pitched uh, i always thought you were one of the most fascinating people in the game, and you still are, and you're now uh, in the Cubs organization. Let's just start here. Um, what have your duties been, and how have they changed uh, this summer, uh, as opposed to what a typical major league season would look like for Craig Breslow? Yeah, so um, you know, I'm the the director of pitching. I kind of oversee pitching development, uh, which which keeps me kind of in a in a position of oversight uh, over over the minor, our minor league pitching development. Uh, but work pretty closely with with the major league staff, obviously, given um, you know the, uh, the the frequent transactions, especially as it relates to pitchers uh, b- between the minor leagues and the big leagues. Um, work pretty closely with the front office and kind of liaise between um, you know executive leadership and and uh, our coaching staff on the field. Um, I think this this season particularly has has represented a challenge. Um, you know, so I took this role transitioning out of, uh, the, the previous one, which was the, the director of strategic initiatives. Um, and my assumption is you're going to ask me about exactly what that was, uh, <laughs> earlier, but anyway, um, so, you know, this, this role is new to me. It's also new to the Cubs. So I think, 
even if this were the most typical of seasons, there would have been some uh, navigating and uh, kind of unforeseen experiences. But given that nobody has uh, kind of experienced a season like this one, I suppose it levels the playing field a bit. Yeah. Uh, and JD, I'll let you jump in, but I, I just want to follow up uh, with you on, on on one thing you talked about, because uh, I've talked to Kyle Bodie before and uh, this, this, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird phrase and, and it can come off wrong, but coaching the coaches and, and the idea of having kind of a, a more cohesive organization from top to bottom. Right. And I think for years and decades, uh, a lot of groups kind of did their own thing based um, on the physical proximity of a minor league team. But the idea is that everything is connected now. Um, how important is that? And would you anticipate within the next decade or so that pretty much every organization will have people like you who try to keep that seamless uh, nature of minor league to, to major league? Yeah, so I would say certainly that continuity is critical. Um, I've, I've heard Kyle speak a ton, um, have talked with him on a number of occasions, and, and I think we uh, have similar thoughts kind of about what the ideal model can look like. Um, you know, and, and right, this idea of coach the coaches is, is kind of the, the term that he uses. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about empowering our coaches and educating our coaches. And so I look at my position as more kind of setting organizational strategy or direction. And then enabling our coaches and our coordinators to get, you know, kind of uh, in front of our players and, and actually implement and execute on these strategies. Uh, you know, I think what we've seen and the reason that I would agree that, that at some point in the not too distant future, um, most organizations will transition from kind of the previous coordinator model is that for a number of reasons, I think it's antiquated. Um, you know, I think there's there's more information, more data available right now. And, you know, it's kind of rendered uh, the bandwidth limitations on a single coordinator. Um, you know, and I think the other thing that we've seen is typically, uh, you know, your, your best coach becomes a minor league coordinator. And therefore, that kind of inherent coaching is still kind of ingrained in that position. And so, you know, I think anyone with playing experience would tell you that, you know, what happens when a coordinator comes to town is they become the coach for the three or four days that they're there, right? Um, and it's just that's just not the most efficient model. We need to make sure that, you know, that the 27, 28 days a month that a coordinator isn't in town are just as productive. And I think in order to do that, we need to make sure that we've kind of aligned uh, on what our developmental approach will be with all of our pitchers. Uh, and then we've empowered our coaches who are with our, our players every single day uh, to, to execute and implement, as I mentioned. So are you um, are you looking at a lot of video are you seeing a lot of uh, analytics uh you know exactly what you know what, what comes across your desk on a daily basis yeah so i think all of those things um you, you know and i know that uh around the draft uh it, it became kind of public that we had a, a player development app that we can utilize and you know not that anyone kind of foresaw uh, a, a global pandemic like this um, when we were building out this app, but technology has enabled us to remain connected to our players in ways that we wouldn't have been able to in the past and, and potentially in ways that other organizations may not be able to. And so, you know, we have uh, players who are able to, to upload video, uh, you know, into our internal database. And so our coaches, coordinators and front office can get eyes on it. Um, you know, when we've been able to, to take a look at, uh, at data, we, we can do that. Um, you know, I think there are, there are two themes, actually, that, that I try to pass along to our pitchers during this time. Um, one is that no matter what we do, this is not going to be the, the perfect or ideal model. 
So we're not looking to use this time perfectly. We're simply using this, the, using, we're looking to use this time as well as we possibly can and hopefully better than the other organizations, right? That's kind of the first thing. So we have to, you know, kind of remove ourselves from dreaming on this idealized state. Uh, and then the second thing, um, this, this term that I use is that this is, this is not a test that you can cram for. What I, what I mean by that is, you know, it becomes really easy to miss a workout or miss a mound session or, you know, kind of give less, uh, give suboptimal effort into, uh, a throwing day uh, when nobody is watching you, uh, when you're not collecting data, when there is no performance, um, you know, outcome dictated by this. Uh, but it's going to become clear. And, you know, whether that is this fall or next spring, uh, it's going to become clear just who has used this time, who's worked hard, who's, um, you know, focused on some of the, the goals that maybe we've presented and, and who hasn't. And my fear is that, you know, come probably the, the, the turn of the calendar to, you know, to 2021, um, guys are going to kind of wake up and say, oh, it's January. Now it's time to get ready for a season. And they'll actually have lost pretty close to, to 12 months of development opportunity. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've tried to keep our pitchers in, in engaged uh, during this period. And to their credit, um, they've remained remarkably kind of diligent in their work. Um, you know, and, and engaged in passing along information when they can. Uh, so that I do think, um, you know, when we are able to get back on the field, we'll see a lot of progress. So, yeah, that's, so, so, so you've got a number of guys down at the alternate site. But my question is, uh, so the minor leaguers are the kids that are, that are home or, or working out wherever they can. What, what does that look like? What, is, does everybody have a catch or does everybody have access to, uh, to a place to work out? Um, and it's got to be so bizarre for those kids. It very much looks like different things for different people. And even kind of within each pitcher, it changes, um, you know, based on availability of resources, based on, you know, local restrictions. Um, you know, we have guys that four or five months ago were able to get into their off-season facilities and get in front of, you know, a Rapsodo or a Trackman um, and, you know, Two or three weeks later, they were shut down. Um, you know, and we're we're seeing this kind of throughout the world. One thing that we did do uh, early on in this quarant in the quarantine period was uh, to ask guys to submit kind of home videos of their uh, training environments, and we saw some pretty unbelievable uh, creativity and imagination. Um, you know, with with guys uh, taking certainly taking the initiative to figure out a way to get work done, and and whether that's you know strength and conditioning routines with body weights or, you know, anything you could kind of find laying around, whether it's cinder blocks or rocks, um, you know, they were doing that. We had pitchers that were building their own mounds or throwing into piles of dirt, bales of hay, um, you know, playing catch with relatives. You know, this is like literally, um, you know, you kind of rewind a 50 to 100 years and you say, you know what, like we're going to figure out who, who wants to find a way to get better during this period. Um, you know, and, and, and obviously the, the resources aren't perfect, but the things like, you know, technology like the app and just kind of the level of engagement that our coaches have demonstrated with our pitchers has enabled us to understand uh, what realistic expectations are of each guy. And, you know, there are going to be some guys that during the course of a season, we would have maybe targeted a, a particular pitch shape. Um, you know, we maybe wanted to, to add a pitch to, to supplement a repertoire that we simply can't do during this time. And if we can realize that early on and kind of pivot to another development opportunity, then I think that that just becomes much more beneficial than kind of banging our head against the wall, wondering, you know, if 
uh, we're going to we're going to meet certain um, you know results. Okay, this is this is good because uh, I think as you know, guys like Rowan Wick and Brad Wick come in, and people you know say, you know, curveball really good. Cubs want to get them in the lab, and all of a sudden, you know, it's just electric. Uh, I think in some lay people's minds, like like even me, uh, I say, well, you know, if you're a big league pitcher in this day and age, you can probably learn any pitch and just go in and just work at it and be good at it. But I'm guessing that's the simplistic view of it and that there are body types and grips and hand size and things like that. Jim Deshays pitched 12 years in the big leagues and JD, you, you could not sink the ball, right? You no, could no, not no, throw no, a sinker. No, no, so not. the question for Craig Breslow is, could you have taught Jim Deshays to throw a good sinker or are there just certain guys and then their mechanics and the way they throw that you would not even want to try to teach them that pitch because they're incapable of throwing it. Yeah. So that's a, that's, that's a really good question. And, and, you know, obviously not looking to, um, you know, kind of share, share too many, you know, too many details about how we make the sausage. Sure. Here. Uh, sure. I, I do think to, to, to that point, I do think that we're learning a ton about release characteristics, um, you know, and, and, and kind of indices of certain, um, pitch traits. And we're learning that it will be very difficult for certain people to throw certain types of pitches based on those things. Uh, so it's possible we could have taught him, uh, you know, we could have taught you a, a sinker. Um, but it's also conceivable that we just simply wouldn't have been able to based on, and, and that kind of comes down to this idea of like capacity, right? Like, does your body have the capacity to do something? Uh, or are we asking you to do something you're not physically capable of doing? Now, I will say that our understanding of what uh, certain pitchers are capable of doing is changing. Um, you know, when you look at some of the developments in velocity training, uh, in kind of arm path remapping that, that we've seen over the last handful of years, and I think we would, you know, all of us in player development would concede that things that we long thought were, you know, kind of intrinsic or irreversible, we're learning maybe aren't so anymore. Um, so, you know, I, I would be reluctant to say never, but I would certainly say that we can point to certain pitches based on, you know, some release characteristics and say it is far more likely that you can throw, you know, this pitch than that one. And therefore, we should start uh, there. Right. So Nolan Ryan threw, you know, hard to the day he retired. But for the most part, guys didn't do that <laughs> other than the freaks of nature, so to speak. So a Fernando Rodney, um, is he a product of just you know, is he a freak of nature or is he a guy who you think in the end uh, did pick up on some of these things in terms of his training to be able to continue to throw in the mid nineties when he hit age 40? Because I just, I don't know about you, JD. I don't remember guys like him who just maintained velocity for 20 years. It just didn't happen. And yeah, I guess maybe it's few. easier for a reliever. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I mean, um, you know, the, just the overall kind of wear and tear uh, on, the, on a reliever's arm as opposed to a starter is different. Um, you know, I think we, we label someone a freak of nature until we understand why they were able to do what, we, what they did, and then we try to replicate that, right? So, um, <laughs> you know, is he a freak of nature? Is he doing something that we don't understand? Or, you know, is he, you know, or does he have some predisposition to being able to maintain velocity, whether that's, you know, kind of laxity in, in, in joints or, um, you know, extreme ranges of motion? Uh, you know, I, I don't know enough particularly about, about the player to be able to kind of speak to that. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, I believe that we will be able to explain uh, nearly everything that happens. Um, we're just not quite there yet. 
How close are we to determining uh, these are the perfect mechanics for a pitcher to maintain velocity and maintain health? Yeah, so I'd argue further away than we thought we were probably five years ago when we thought we were there or, or five years before that. When You know, you, you can kind of follow the ebb and flow of understanding velocity generation and understanding mechanics and understanding health. And I think, um, you know, there is a counterpoint to every one of those examples, right? There's there's the pitcher who has the perfect mechanics who gets hurt, and there's the pitcher that we're waiting to get hurt who retires uh, be, before you know ever spending a day on the disabled list. I think what we're finding out is is more that it's difficult to paint um, sound mechanics across pitchers, and far easier to paint sound mechanics within pitchers. Meaning, um, you know, we we can use uh, motion capture technology, uh, and we can kind of do comparative diagnostics um, to say that, you know, this is when you're at your best or this is when you are healthiest, but to try and transfer those conclusions to another pitcher becomes really difficult just given the complexity of, uh, you, know, um, you know, physiological considerations, training environments, intentions, uh, there are just too many variables. And I think, you know, every time we uncover a layer, we find another level of complexity. Um, so there may be a time where we understand, uh, you know, that there are certain trade-offs within a delivery and that, um, you know, targeting velocity may come at the expense of health or, um, you know, velocity at the expense of a particular pitch shape. Um, you know, and so I think we kind of have to run the calculus with each individual. But to say that someone's got pitching mechanics figured out, um, you know, the, the, the skeptic in me would, would be very, very doubtful. Dear adventurers, enjoy a summer of excitement with Toyota. Keep it wild in the rugged Forerunner. Take charge in the 2020 Camry with available all-wheel drive. Explore more and go farther in the stylish RAV4 or fuel-efficient RAV4 Hybrid. Or cruise with your crew in the roomy Highlander Hybrid with electric, on-demand, all-wheel drive. Soak it up, Toyota. Right now, get 1.9% APR for 60 months on a new 2020 RAV4 or RAV4 Hybrid. Visit your local Toyota dealer or toyota.com to learn more. I remember having a conversation uh, years ago with Theo about a lot of the analytical um, discussions that we're having right now uh, ultimately lead back in many cases to things that have long been held as true. Some things not so much, but the idea of launch angle, and JD, you and I have talked about this during broadcasts, it just has a different name now. Uh, Babe Ruth had launch angle, but he never would have used those words together. So. That's the fascinating part of this, too, is to kind of dive into some of these topics and find out, oh, yeah, this guy 80 years ago was doing exactly what uh, we're trying to do uh, here in the 21st century. It's, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, no question about that. And I think, um, you, know, you know, obviously uh, there's been kind of a shift in the understanding and embracing of, uh, you know, advanced metrics and technology and data. Um, and, and maybe at times in certain organizations, uh, kind of reluctantly so. But I think on the whole, when you can have a productive conversation with someone that would be labeled, you know, 
old school, uh, I think you, you do realize exactly what you just said, which is we're talking about the same thing. You might use a, uh, you know, a traditional baseball term, uh, and I might use a metric, right? But like, we're talking about the same thing. And the value of being able to measure something is to, you know, is to determine whether or not you're making progress, it's getting better or worse, and to create the opportunity for apples to apples comparisons across different locations, right? I mean, it's no different than, you know, you, you scout someone and you say that they're fast and you scout someone else and you say that they're fast. Well, who's faster? Well, if you put a time with, if you put a time, you know, from home to first or, or whatever, it becomes a lot easier. And then, you know, you talk about radar guns, right? And then scouts for, you know, for, for as long as baseball has been played, have been played, uh, you know, had been played would have talked about, uh, you know, fastball that's got like deception or kind of plays above, you know, the, the radar gun reading or has life or carry through the zone. Right. And now we talk about, you know, rise and 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 spin rates right i mean that's kind of probably the the example that most people talk uh talk to but i think um you know there are a couple things that are worth mentioning so one certainly the ability to quantify just allows us to evaluate um you know one player against another and also one player against himself i think the second thing um that maybe at times is lost at least for me is that in no way will or at least kind of not so long as I'm in this position, will data or technology replace a coach? Um, and not just because, you know, there's value in uh, kind of appreciating the human element and culture building, um, but because data and technology often allow us to diagnose a problem, they don't solve the problem, right? And so, you know, I feel like I probably because of both my playing career and then maybe like educational background, I find myself kind of thrust into this argument of am I old school or am I new school or, you know, am I a traditionalist or do I believe in kind of, uh, you know, analytics? And, and what I really what I want to argue is like the value of coaches, um, you know, the value of playing experience has not, in my opinion, has not been diminished. Like, here's what changed. Probably 20 years ago, if you had to choose all else being equal between someone kind of rooted in traditional baseball experience and someone, you know, maybe with, uh, you know, kind of an, an Ivy League degree, um, you know, and, and an analytical bent, you chose the traditional baseball mind, right? And today, all else being equal, you probably skew toward, um, you know, the kind of Ivy League analytically inclined staff member but the the ideal version is still the blend of both and i think that's kind of been lost in in this conversation i have a, a so kind of um in terms of uh old school versus new school and just jargon um tunneling right we talk a lot a lot about tunneling and it, it used to be as pitchers we were just taught well you want to have the same release point create deception, ball comes out of your hand looking, you know, so the hitter doesn't see a hump in a curveball or he doesn't see a certain, a certain look that tips, uh, tips you off. Is, is there more to tunneling than that? Is tunneling a, a broader concept that encompasses more than just consistent release point? Yeah, I would say it is. I would say um, that's kind of been the, been a focus of, of, you know, some members of our R and D staff and, you know, trying to identify, sure. Like there's, you want to use the same release point, but now that, you know, we have TrackMan that can, measure pretty precisely release points like what is kind of the margin for error that's acceptable right is is it one inch is it two inches is it three inches um you know we now have like these portable rap soto units that can tell uh you know kind of how far in the path between um you know release and and home plate pitches are deviating from each other 
uh, a lot of these like flight simulators that can overlay pitches allow us to get a much better perspective um, you know on where kind of separation occurs and where uh, you know where this is potentially meaningful or where it's too late for a hitter to distinguish anyway uh, so I mean I think probably the core right kind of the, the, the core concept of how long does one pitch look like another that's unchanged i think our ability to, to quantify the impact of that is getting better and then also the ability to start to identify which pitches play best off of each other kind of sequentially and in terms of location i i want to uh, uh kind of do the old school new school thing and it, it's something that i uh, often try to remember as a broadcaster because typical players get labeled and uh, I have no doubt you're a great athlete because you pitched 12 years in the big leagues. Kyle Hendricks is a great athlete. Uh, but John Smoltz is a friend of mine. And I think guys who have stuff and position players who are kind of five-tool guys, they get labeled as incredible athletes and they just kind of get by on their talent. And then you have guys like Craig Breslow and Kyle Hendricks and maybe a Greg Maddox, who's also a great athlete. And they go, well, they were really smart. Did it ever bother you that maybe people downplayed your athleticism? And it's kind of a weird question, but I always try to pull back and remind people that Kyle Hendricks is good at everything. He's like a scratch golfer, and we call him the professor, but make no mistake about it. He, he's in that upper echelon of athletes uh, on the planet. Did that ever annoy uh, you when everyone talked about how smart you were? And you're like, hey, I'm a major league player too. Yeah, you know, I actually like, get asked about this relatively frequently given um, there, there was an article that was written at some point that I think called me the, the smartest man in baseball. Um, and <laughs> yeah, how much heat did you take in the clubhouse with that one, Craig? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I joked that like, it didn't actually matter what the question was. I was always on the receiving end of like, is it going to rain? Are we going to strike? You know, what is this supplement? It, it didn't really matter. Um, I mean, I, I I could kind of ground myself in the notion that like there are far worse things I could be called. Um, but certainly, you know, there is this stigma, I think, that follows probably a guy like like Hendricks or, or you know, potentially a guy like myself where, you know, you just associate like where did someone go to college uh, with kind of uh, a statement about their abilities, um, which I think is unfair. And I, I did, uh, you know, kind of attempt to do my best to ensure that my teammates recognize that when I got to the field. I just wanted to be a baseball player like anybody else. And I wanted to be a guy that, you know, could go get some outs later in a game. Um, you know, I think it took some time maybe to dispel that, like, you know, I'm not going to be reading biochemistry in my locker. Um, you know, I, I might just be watching game video. Um, but ultimately, I think we get to that point. And, 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 the, and the point about athleticism, I think, is, you know, it's kind of fundamentally rooted in, like, how do you define athleticism? Um, because certainly, you know, you look at a guy like Hendricks or Maddox, right. And, and, um, you know, a, a guy with maybe not, uh, the most ex guys with not the most exciting stuff, but the ability to, to execute, uh, and, and command. And certainly there is some, uh, kind of spatial awareness or proprioception that is a component of, of athleticism that these guys just have to be off the charts on. Right. Um, yeah. because Often we talk about, well, it's the ability to repeat a delivery, um, you know, is, is kind of one of the leading indicators of command. And, you know, I think you push that further and you would say, I don't think any of us have any doubt that Greg Maddox or Kyle Hendricks could, you know, do a somersault, somersault spin around five times, jump up and down and still throw a strike, right? 
So it's not necessarily the ability to command so much as just having this incredible awareness of where your body is in space and just knowing where those guys know exactly when and where they need to release the ball in order to get it over the plate. And that's just having, uh, like I said, this kind of incredible body awareness. Um, and that's what makes them good golfers, right? And that's what makes them probably good ping pong players or billiard shooters in addition to, to you know, executing on the mound. I don't want to speak for John Smoltz. So let me just uh, chime in, J.D., before you jump in. But, you know, and, and you can answer this too, J.D. You watch Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz. And, you know, they're all great friends. But I think it, there was a point where Smoltz would be like, guys, just because I throw 10 miles an hour faster than you doesn't make it easier for me. And I think there was this sense, right, internally, there's like, oh, it's easy. You know, you throw a 92 mile an hour slider. And it's like, John's John's like, but I'm smart too. And he is, he's really smart. So it kind of does work both ways. Yeah, no question. Like, you know, uh, ask those guys to like close their eyes and, and you know, and balance on one foot and, and, you know, and ask someone that we would label an athlete to do the right. same thing. And you might be surprised by, you know, kind of who who's better at a, at a simple task like that. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah, and, Well, I was just going to say, you know, similar uh, to the point about, uh, you know, Maddox and, and, and Hendricks uh, and their great command. There, there are other pitchers who do not have good command and uh, they get a reputation of uh, they're timid. They won't attack. They're not aggressive. But throwing the ball where you want to throw it is a skill that some possess at a, at a higher level than others. And, and wildness isn't, isn't necessarily... Um, a, you know, a mental thing where a guys are not willing to challenge. I, mean, I, th- I think guys, well, Dylan Maples comes to mind, right? Uh, I think there are a number of guys who just have a hard time throwing the ball where they want to. And that has to be uh, incredibly frustrating for you, Craig, and everybody else is involved with, with coaching pitchers or teaching pitchers uh, to try to get that guy to the next level. Yeah, you know, it's funny, right? You look at kind of the evolution of pitching development, and I would have argued that 30 years ago, people would have said, you know, you have this kind of internal governor on your velocity, right? Like you may not have reached it yet, but there is some threshold above which you'll just never throw a baseball. And if you just continue to throw bullpens, eventually you'll get command, right? Um, I think we're learning that that's not, that both of those may be, may be equally wrong. Um, you know, that, that it's not just about reps to, to build command. If you don't have, you know, kind of the, the stability or the functional strength or just the, you know, the, the proprioception or awareness of your body in space and doing it more is not going to, to train that. Uh, and conversely, you know, we've seen um, some of the velocity training that, you know, has, has gained a ton of attention, um, has gotten pitchers throwing harder than they ever have before. And I'm not sure that, you know, we've reached the ceiling there either. Uh, but command training is really, it's really delicate. It's really sensitive. Um, you know, there are some, uh, kind of modalities out there that that claim to uh, you know to, to be effective in command training. Um, you know, and, and and certainly one thing that this player development infrastructure has has prided itself on is is you know being willing to pursue any potential resource that's available. But but I think to date, um, you know, I don't believe there is kind of a hard and fast solution to to command woes because I think uh, you know the inability to throw strikes is a manifestation of some more deeply rooted issue. Uh, and that is not consi- that issue is not consistent across all pitchers who struggle to throw strikes. As you look at you know your career as a pitcher, and you pitched for I think seven different uh, big league teams, and it wasn't always easy for you. And I'm sure you had moments uh, of doubt uh, in terms of whether you would get back uh, to the big leagues and kind of back to where you were at your best. How important were those struggles and those experiences to you? And now that you take that into a front office position, where 
you're, you're, you're dealing with a lot of players who either haven't gotten there or are trying to get back there and you understand how they feel. Yeah, I think, uh, I think empathy is a big part of this game. Um, and I think, uh, you know, experience is valuable in that, you know, I can say that I've sat in, you know, I've sat in the seat that, that, that any pitcher is going to sit in at this point, um, you know, been released, been designated, been traded, uh, you know, have, have had great seasons, have had terrible seasons, have won the World Series, have thrown a ball into the stands in the World Series. So I kind of have, have lived it all, uh, and, and I'm hopeful that matters. But again, like every pitcher in our organization is is kind of on a unique trajectory and a unique journey. And so, um, you know, I do want to be sensitive to the reality that while I've probably kind of transactionally been through um the, the same process i don't have all of the same considerations uh but i can certainly speak to how quickly uh you know a career can can turn around how quickly an opportunity can be arise i was i was pitching in the big leagues less than a year after having been released out of a ball uh simply because our big league team was on the east coast our triple a team was on the west coast our double a team was on the east coast as well and there was no way to get a player from triple a over to uh to the east coast in time for a game the next day and I happen to be the freshest arm uh, in our double-A bullpen. And so, you know, um, I think those kind of anecdotes maybe resonate with our with our players. Um, and, I, and I do think it's powerful to be able to say that, you know, we are a resource. We are here for you. Uh, you know, we want to make – I think a, player, a lot of player development uh, infrastructures today speak about a player-centric model. But it's easy to talk about, and it's another thing to actually give the players um, – you know, kind of the, the key stakeholder chair at the table. Uh, and, and, and thus far, I think we've committed to it. And, and you know, Matt Dory and Bobby Basham have, have done a great job in kind of leading um, this direction. And I think our players have, have responded really, really well to it thus far. So um, have you spent any time at the alternate site? And can you give us any insight in, into what that looks like, what, what the day-to-day looks like over there? Uh, yeah, so I actually was there about a week ago. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it's a really productive initiative. Uh, I think we've got pitchers who are getting better, but I mean, I would be lying if I said it wasn't, you know, a bit of a grind, right? Um, you know, every day you're kind of putting on the same uniform to face the same uniforms. I think our pitchers have faced, you know, the handful of hitters there, probably now closing in on 100 at-bats. There are, there are no secrets anymore. Um, you know, and what we've been trying to do is kind of navigate uh, the line between supporting the big league, uh, the big league team, which is obviously the you know the biggest priority, but also using this as a development opportunity and ensuring that you know our, regardless of kind of where our pitchers came from, they're leaving uh, the alternate site a better a better pitcher with a better understanding, a better identity of who they are uh, than than they arrived. And so you know there are still some targeted pitch design sessions and some. Uh, delivery tune-ups in addition to, you know, the, the, the kind of sim games and competitions that are taking place each day. I would imagine tedium is an issue. Yes. And, 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 and the, and the staff there has done an incredible job of, of kind of keeping things fresh to the extent that they can. Uh, and, and the players, I think also understand the, the situation that they're in. They understand just how unique this, this situation is and that, you know, they're literally a phone call away. We've had some guys go up, you know, go up to the big leagues, uh, that you know maybe six or eight months ago we hadn't hand anticipated and that's that's a testament to the work that they've put in and the progress that they've made um you know and so 
the, the players there do need to understand that while it's easy um, to, to, I think, kind of be drowned, drowned out into this like mundane, um, you know, kind of stale environment, uh, the opportunity that's ahead of them is real and they shouldn't lose focus. I loved your story about um, how you got uh, to the big leagues, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a comparison here. And you guys remember the name, <clears throat> Jamie Carroll, uh, the uh, infielder who uh, played in parts of 12 seasons. I don't know. Did you ever play with him, Craig? I did uh, in Cleveland. Okay, so do you know his story? You know how he got to the big leagues? Um, I feel like once you tell me, I will remember having heard it, but off the top of my head, honestly, I do not. So 2002, Major League Baseball owned the Expos. You remember that? Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe it was Jose Macias uh, or one of their utility guys uh, suffered a season-ending injury around September 9th or 10th. The Expos happened to be at Wrigley Field uh, for a series. So they needed essentially an infielder. and. The one and only reason Jamie Carroll made his big league debut in Chicago was because he's from Evansville, and he happened to be home after the minor league season, and because he was just a, whatever, 90-minute, two-hour drive from the city, he made his major league debut, and he ended up playing in 1,275 major league games, was a career 272 hitter. Had a really good career. I tell that story because it, it reminded me, uh, you know, the story you told. But that the, the razor thin margin, right, between a guy who may never get an opportunity at the big league level versus a guy who does, and when you do get that chance, you obviously have to make the most of it. But that's instructive, isn't it, to like tell a guy who hasn't been able to get here, who's been grinding for nine or ten years, that you never know, Jose Martinez. 11 seasons before he got to the major league. So these guys who who have the dream and they don't want to let it go, it can happen. Absolutely. In the, you know, the, in the Cliff's Notes version of, of my debut, uh, what I left out is, so I was released in, in 2004, uh, applied to medical school, planned to, to matriculate at NYU um, kind of the September of the next year, which left me basically a season and a half um, before I would set foot in a, in a med school classroom. And uh, so I finished the year playing independent ball and was invited to basically a tryout by uh, the, the Padres prior to spring training um, for kind of independent league performers. And I, I hesitantly um, attended just figuring I've got nothing to lose, though I'm you know, perfectly content to, to go back and play independent ball the, the, that next season um, and then kind of go on my way to, to medical school. So I went back for, for two days. They invited me to spring training again. Uh, I wasn't really sure if this is what I wanted to do. And I told him I would go to spring training, um, but I was not going to go back to A-ball. I was only going to go to double-A uh, out of camp. And, and not that I necessarily felt like, uh, you know, I would be wronged if they wanted to send me back to A-ball. Just at, at that point, I was 24 years old. And, and so I, I was released out of A-ball the previous season. So if you can kind of follow along with me, basically what happened was, um, I, was I was fired and then I demanded a promotion. Uh, and, and that's not typically, uh, I, I suppose, how things work. Uh, but I went into spring training with, with the Padres and had a uh, had a really successful spring. And they kept on, you know, I think trying to break me down, you know, asked if I would go back to A ball and be the first guy up to double A. If I would stay in extended and, you know, as soon as an opportunity opened, I would I would head out to double A. Uh, and I said, no, not not because, again, I thought I was, you know, kind of getting the, the raw end of a deal, but just because um, I, I had some contingencies that I wanted to pursue if this wasn't going to work out. 
And I can remember being the 13th pitcher on, on the list uh, of, of a, what was going to ultimately be a 12-man staff heading into the day that spring training was supposed to break. And, and one pitcher actually tested positive uh, for a banned substance. And so I made the double-A team coming out of spring training uh, and then was ended, ended up getting called up from, from there. So wow. there's a few levels to, yeah, to, to, to the uh, serendipity, I suppose. Yeah. And, and Jamie Carroll was 28 when he made his debut. So, you know, he was not a prospect. And I think there's a decent chance that had that not occurred, he may have never gotten uh, any big league call up. And again, uh, credit to him that uh, he had a nice, successful career. JD, any uh, last question for uh, Craig before the uh, spring? Yeah, um, uh, Craig, uh, um, 29 across, um, Belgrade <laughs> resident. So, no, no, this has been fascinating. Uh, thanks so much for your insight. Um, you know, uh, just you know, trying to get a grasp on on the way the way the game is is, is progressing. It's it's very interesting to get your insight. Uh, uh, thank you so much. And I have one one quick anecdote for you guys talking about uh, players getting called up to the big leagues at, at different times. So the Yankees way back in the day, uh, I think it was I don't know if it was Nettles. Somebody was playing third base for the Yankees and got hurt. Uh, Rex Hudler and, and Mike Pagliarulo were both in the Yankee minor league system at the time. And uh, they, they called Hudler and said, you're coming to the big leagues. And then they went to Willie Randolph and said, Willie, we're going to move you to third base um, and, and we're going to call up Hudler. And Willie said, no, you're not. He said, I'm not, I'm not moving across the diamond on the second baseman. So they had to call Hudler back and say, whoops, no, you're not coming. And they called up Pally Rulo. So you talk about, Ooh. yeah, yeah, but, yeah. That's probably not the most efficient way to, to make those decisions. <laughs> Times have changed for sure. Yeah. Hey, Craig, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. We'd love to do this again at some point, and uh, we hope to see you in person real soon. Sounds good. No, I I appreciate the time as well. Thanks. Thanks, Craig. Thanks to uh, Craig Breslow for joining us this week. We will uh, dive into the Dixon Baseball Dictionary here in a second, but uh, we've got a got to do our weekly admission and I'll start JD uh, we had a lengthy conversation about coffee uh, on one of our TV broadcasts the other night and I pointed out that I have never put cream milk sugar cinnamon uh, chocolate <laughs> nothing I've never put anything in my coffee I like it straight up uh, on or I guess fully leaded uh, mostly you know, I don't do decaf very often either. And I got a lot of pushback on that. What's the deal with that? I don't know. I don't know why you would have pushback. You have every right to have coffee exactly the way you want it, Len. I would, I would, I would snap back at these people. I once had some dreams there were clouds in my coffee. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm mostly a black coffee guy too. Every now and then, uh, not so much lately, but it used to be a little, a little, you know, a little pour of Bailey's in there for, for you know, an sure. after dinner coffee. Uh, I would go that route. But, yeah, I'm a gotcha. black coffee guy as well. Okay. Uh, do you have anything this week? Yeah, just my, my, my weekly rant, um, uh, and, and it's uh, to my fellow drivers out there. I know we're in, in, in troubled times, but when someone lets you in, don't forget about the friendly wave. I like the acknowledgement. I want to get that wave if I let you in. And conversely, when you cut somebody off, the friendly wave doesn't let you off the hook, right? <laughs> you know, that guy, he cuts you off, but he gives you the wave like, hey, thanks. And, and you had no intention of letting him in. Um, and I, I've been guilty of, of both of those offenses. But Right. Well, yeah. 
We we tend to do as I say, not as I do on yeah. this podcast. Yes. Okay. So uh, pick a letter, uh, maybe a popular letter. You know, let's not start with X, but pick a letter, and I'll dive into the dictionary and uh, a random page, and we'll pick a couple of entries. A popular letter, a well liked letter. Uh, <laughs> we did F last week, yeah, so stay away from F. Let's go R. Let's see what R has to okay, offer. Okay. Let's go to R. I'm an N. Let's go R. P. That's right after P. Okay. <laughs> if there's nothing good there, we can move no, on. No, 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 no. No, this is good. Okay, retire the side, uh, which is one everybody knows. That's concluding the opposition's turn at bat for its half inning by attaining three putouts. The first use of retire the side uh, came in 1874, so two years before the uh, National League started. Uh, there's one called retread. And I'm reading again from the Dixon uh, Dictionary. A player whose career seems to be nearing its end, but who is given a chance with a new team, a major league player who has been sent back to the minor leagues and brought back to the majors. The term is a direct borrowing from automotive retreads. Old tires given new life than wrapped in a new tread. We tend to find kind of searing terminology for guys like that, right? Retreads, journeyman, there's this, you know, organ he's an organizational guy. Uh there are just certain phrases and things that, you know, I tend to not like to use the word retread because that that's very pejorative. Yeah, I I you know, and I've been all of that. And and I kind of <laughs> if given my if I had an option, I, I would prefer journeyman. I think there's something uh romantic about the journeyman, you know bounced around, you've played with a lot of clubs, you're hanging in there, you're fighting to, to keep your career alive, and, and you have value. Retread sounds to me like, oh my God, not this guy again. So <laughs> I, I'm going to uh, pledge from this day forward, and I don't think I've used it, but I will never use retread uh, referring to a, a player. All right, I one more. Do you know what Ruben's rule is? Ruben's rule is that uh, he always gets to drive the bus, regardless of what Danny wants to do. <laughs> That's the secondary Ruben's rule. But the first one is the legal decision that allowed fans to keep foul balls, thereby changing the policy of major league clubs that demanded foul balls gathered by fans must be returned to the field of play. This is from Ruben Berman. A New York Giants fan, maybe related to our buddy Max, who on May 16th, 1921, refused to give a foul ball back and was removed from the polo grounds. He sued the Giants for mental and physical distress and won the court case plus $100. So fans who get foul balls can thank uh, Ruben Berman for that rule. Yeah. Do, do you think they told Berman that he had to give the ball back, 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 back? <laughs> You're on fire this week. Oh, I love it. Uh, a special thanks to our Berman, Max Berman, Joe Rios, Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Jim Oboykowicz, Shane McGuire, Adam Sobel. For Jim Deshays, I'm Len Casper. Subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends. We will talk to you next week on Open Concessions, presented by Toyota.